Well, we'll get started right at 5 p.m. And um, we'll jump in. I think what we're going to do, we're going to be in Exodus 3 for one more week. That's this week. And then next week, we're jumping to a next uh, text. Studying about the doctrine of God, looking at particular passages, and drawing conclusions about who God is, and those conclusions about God that we draw will be our theology of God, okay? Uh, in the weeks that we have up until May, you know, roughly first, second week of May that we'll have this class, um, we will not do have an exhaustive theology of God, but we will cover as many of the attributes as we can, uh, the names of God, the, thing, the works of God that we can in that time. And we are we're diving into particular texts most of these weeks. Uh, and as we dive into those particular texts, we're just asking questions about God and who he is and seeing how he reveals himself to us in Scripture. So that's really what we're doing here in this class. And we're developing our theology about God so that we can know him and that we can love him, Right? What's the Shema in Deuteronomy 6? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, right? And uh, so we want to do that, and that's the goal. And then doxology being the goal of, of uh, worshiping God. So, um, and I'm going to pray here to get us started, but uh, there no new handout this week. There, I'll, I'll finish up. I'll review what we have on this handout. Then we'll, f- we'll finish up the rest of it. But don't be looking. I, I have a lot that I'm going to share that isn't on the bottom half of that handout, okay? Because I, I came up with a, uh, a bunch of new things. So you'll just have to take notes on the back if, you, if you're a note taker. All right? So let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we come before you believing that you are and that you hear us, see us, are with us, and that you desire that we know you and love you and worship you. You've given us your word as the primary resource by which we can know you and have relationship with you. And so I'm asking that in these next minutes as we talk about you from your word that you'd help us to be right and that it would affect not just our heads but our hearts and then our lives that there would be elements of our life that would change even tomorrow because of some aspect we see about you that we needed to see or be reminded of that affects the way we live in this world as your uh, representatives And those who bear the triune name, your triune name. And so I just pray for that, that you'd help us now. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, last call for the handout from last week. Does anybody need the handout from last week? We're going to review it for a second and then get in new information. All right. Exodus 3. Now remember what we did last week, and just this is just by way of review, and I'll fill in those first blanks for you. Uh, what, what we learned about God generally, I, I had intended to get to verses 13 to 15 to analyze the divine name of Yahweh, 
that we started looking at a couple weeks ago and see what God intends for us to understand about himself in that name. But we actually just started last week looking through the first verses up to verse 13. So verses 1 through 12. And we came up with some things that we learned about God generally. And this shows us how how not all theology or studying of doctrine and theology has to be overly complicated. That God makes some things about himself very clear. So we learned that he is the, you know, uh, as an example, you know, the first one, he is the God who speaks. Here in Exodus chapter 3, we see him speaking to uh, Moses. He is the God who speaks and so that we can know who he is. It is uh, his primary means of revelation, of revealing himself is through his word. And now we have his written word. And in that word is the speech of God, the very words of God. So he's a God who speaks. And he is, uh, then we said he is the God who sees, right? He said, I see my people and the oppression that they're experiencing. He's not unaware of what is happening to the Jews. And then he is the God who hears. Because when they were being oppressed in Egypt, they began crying out to him, and he heard their cry, right? He's not uh, deaf to the cries of his people. He hears his people when they cry out to him. Does that still apply to us today? Can we have confidence that... um, when we cry out to God, especially in times of darkness and trial, that he's hearing us? I think the answer to that is clearly yes, right? And he is the God who delivers. This will become the main theme. And actually, when we think about God, as the Jews thought about God, and as we think about God, the key component to that for us is he is the God who has rescued us from our sins, And this was true of the Jews. This is where this begins with Moses. They're going to know who I am because I'm going to deliver them out of Israel. And then this was given to them as uh, the prominent feature of who Yahweh was. He is the God who has delivered them, brought them into their own land. Well, friends, we parallel that exactly right with what we've experienced from God through Jesus, uh, who is a... Far greater Moses and has delivered us out of captivity to sin and is leading us into the promised land. Okay. And by the way, when I make those parallels, that's not just me being creative. That's the design of the Bible. That's what you're supposed to see now. Okay. So he is the God who is still delivering people to this day, young and old, who call upon the name of the Lord, right? Romans 10. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls upon Yahweh uh, for salvation, whoever looks to Jesus, the Son of God, for salvation, he delivers. This is a promise that uh, is unfailing and something we see right from the beginning. So, So those are some just very, and aren't those very general things to see about God? You could see it on any one of your devotional mornings. I mean, it doesn't take... You know, you don't have to crack open a a theology book to learn those things. You just read the passage asking the question, who are you, God? And you will see some things that are very clear. God wants his people to know who he is, right? And then there were two other things that I put in there. God is both relational and personal, 
or I'm, I started with personal, relational, it doesn't really matter. God is personal. And by that, we primarily mean that what we learn about God as we see his interactions with people, as we hear him talk, as we see what he does, is that he is not an impersonal force or thing, right? He is not an impersonal force like the force of uh, within the Star Wars uh, movies, right? He's not just an impersonal, powerful force that is there. He is a personal being, which means that we can have, and what we see is he's a relational being. He establishes relationship with people. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have had this relationship with them. He says, he, he calls the children of Israel, my people with whom I have personal relationship with, okay? He is a relational God. And in the gospel, we see this extends not to just one ethnic group of people, not one nation of Israel, but that God is pro, uh, promoting the gospel throughout all the nations to call people from every tribe and tongue and nationality into this, into relation, into covenant relationship with him through faith in his son, Jesus. And, uh, and so he is a relational God with whom you can, you can uh, have experience personal relationship with every single day. This isn't something that is unique uh, for just some people or not. It is for those who call in the name of the Lord we see that now you have, you're brought into this relationship with God and he is relational with you, meaning he speaks to you, you speak to him, you hear from him, you pray to him, he answers your prayers, all those things. So uh, in learning, I think, to walk in that knowledge of that relational element is a key to a growing Christian experience. Growing, well, we'll we, we put it this way, right? Growing in our relationship with God. Or you might say, I want to grow in my relationship to Christ. Well, it's a wonderful thing that we have a God who's relational, who knows us personally and has this relationship with him, okay? Any questions on that before we move on? That, that, if you weren't here last week, you just got caught up. Yes. Are thoughts okay? Uh, sure. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is, is a mystical force or something like that. Right. And that all three members of the Godhead are relational with us. Yeah. And this is, that's a good point. The, the idea of the Spirit can sometimes be very, uh, what was the word you used, mystical to us or what have you. And we have to learn to personalize the Spirit and the relationship you have with him, right? Because what is true of God generally is true of all three persons of the Godhead. And, um, you know, you have relationship with and to the triune God. Uh, yeah, that's good. So, okay, well, let's kind of, let's move on then to uh, what we're going to look at this week. And we're going to revisit verses 13 to 15. I say revisit because two weeks ago we started there. And then we'll finish this up. So Moses is being commissioned to go to Egypt, to go to Pharaoh, to bring out the children of Israel. And um, Moses is uncertain, of course. You'll read more about that in chapters 3 and 4 and that, about this whole 
thing that's going on here <laughs> as he's communicating with God. And he says in verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. Now he shortens it a little bit. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, verse 15, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is a very important passage, isn't it? We're dealing with who God is and how he reveals himself specifically now in this name. And did you notice the progression in these verses? He starts out with saying, I am who I am. He goes into that second part and he says, now you tell them I am has sent me to you. And then the third one, what does it say? The Lord. Remember the Lord in all capital letters? The underlying Hebrew word is Yahweh. It's just a form of I am. Probably Scholars believe something to this effect. He is. With the form of the verb turning then to what would it be? The third singular, right? He is. I am to he is something to that effect. Okay? But if you say I am, people know, Christians usually know what you're talking about. And if you see, remember, Lord, in your Old Testament, it'll be Capital L-O-R-D, all capitalized, that's Yahweh underneath. If you see it in Lord with just capital L-O-R-D, lowercase, that's Adonai. Okay, so we covered that. But so anyway, uh, Lord is his name or I am or he is. Now, when he, he uses this, I, when he says I am, what form of speech is that? What part of speech? Okay, it's present tense, but even more basic than that, what kind of word is it? It's a verb. It's a, it's a word of action. And actually, this particular verb, we may have covered this a little bit, but this is the Hebrew verb of being, right? Do we remember this? And what are ways we can express this? Am, right? Or is, or will be, right? Depending on what the context of what you're saying. Just like we have to change, we have is, but it's the same as am, or were, or was. We just, depending if we're talking in past tense, future tense, first person, second person, all that kind of stuff. So this is grammar and um, and we've forgotten grammar because it's been a lot of years since we've been in any kind of grammar. But it's easy to understand. Is or I am is a verb of being. That's what we refer to it as. Uh, and God's answer is I am who I am. Or 
I am what I am. You see those little footnotes, or I will be what I will be. So Hebrew scholars kind of look at it and they say it could be a number of these different ways, but this is the main idea. It is the verb of being. I am, he is. Uh, and this is significant, right? The idea that God reveals himself with a, 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 his name that he wants to be known of throughout all generations, this mysterious name is a verb, and it is the verb of being, which means, right, that's going to communicate something to us about God. If we remember the fact that God wasn't named Nobody gave God this name. Moses didn't come up with the name Yahweh. God named himself, so to speak. This is the name by which I want to be known. Now, further on down the road, uh, people have uh, ascribed to God various names that reveal the character of his being, like he is the God who sees uh, you know, he is God Almighty, different things because of what he has revealed about himself, and they do that. But this name, this sacred name, the divine name, is a name that God is has for himself that was not given to him. It is what he is giving about himself. The reason I'm drawing that out is to say, I don't think that's arbitrary or unimportant then. You're asking yourself, who is God? God is I am. Immediately you're thinking, right? Normal people would be thinking, what does that mean? Are you evading the answer here? Are you uh, speaking in code? I mean, what is it like? I don't understand this. But I think if we give it some thought, we can draw some conclusions about that. Okay, now before we do it, I want to show you something that uh, popped into my devotions this week. I actually thanked God for it when it happened because I thought that's really cool. And it's from Psalm 113. And I want to show you this. I want to do it now so I don't forget. So pause, hit the pause button on the meaning of the name Yahweh. And look at um, Psalm 113 in just these first three verses. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Notice this. Praise the name of the Lord. Now listen. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And um, what we're seeing in this passage, by the way, when you look at uh, praise the Lord, understand that is, we, they could have translated that hallelujah. Hallel being to praise. Uh, so hallelujah is like you praise, it's a command. And then Yah is a shortened uh, version of God's divine name, Yahweh. So I love that because when we're singing songs that 
say hallelujah, you're, a, you're actually being commanded to praise Yah. You're being commanded to praise the divine name. And I actually like that. And I like it sometimes when the song will repeat hallelujah a number of times. And the reason is, is because it's really reiterating praise Yah, praise the God of your salvation and who he is, right? And, and what he's done for you. So it's really hallelujah. Uh, but the name idea of praising the name of the Lord isn't just saying we see, you know, Yahweh, right? And, uh, and we say, wow, that's a neat name. Uh, I like that name. I'm going to praise the name itself. What does he say? What are they saying? What would the Jew have understood when they're being commanded to praise the name of the Lord. All of his attributes, right? All of who he is. Because the name is the rep- represents who he is. Do you see what I mean? So when the name of Yahweh it comes into their mind, all of what they know about him comes into their mind and goes into their hearts and because of what they know about him it is easy for them to therefore praise the name even as they hear it how precious it is how sacred it is uh, to them that we are to be uh, praising the name that is all of who he is and revealed himself to be as Yahweh that makes sense? That was, uh, that was special to me this week when I came across that, so I thought I would show that to you. Now, back in Exodus chapter 3, what is the significance of the name Yahweh, I am or He is? There is an element, before I go too much into, I have a number that I'll just list out here, and I don't know if, I'm I'm not following in on my handout, so this is where you probably need to take some notes or whatever, but um, uh, there is an element to this uh, that uh, it, it can't be fully described in the name of, about who God is. In other words, there's a sense in this is, I am who I am. Or he is. And so if you want to know about that, you have to watch what I do. And further listen to what I say. In other words, you can't uh, encapsulate everything into a name. He chooses a name of being, of I am, simply to say, in part, watch what I do. So if you ever come across, you're, you're reading the Old Testament in the Bible, and the Lord will say something like this. And then I will do this... And then they will know that I am Yahweh. You've come across those passages? I'm going to do this, and then they will know that I am Yahweh. In other words, he, God reveals himself in not just his words, but his actions. That becomes significant with the children of Israel. If we keep it in context here of Exodus, he delivers them out. So this name specifically becomes to them like uh, what the name Jesus means to the Christian. 
which is that when, as soon as they hear the divine name, they immediately relate it to their deliverance out of it, Israel. This is our savior. The Lord is our savior, you see. Watch what I do, you learn who I am, okay? He reveals himself, yes, in words, but also in actions. And I think there's an element to that. But also, this name implies that he is as opposed to the false gods who are not. You remember when we were, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the fact that they, they were in captivity in Egypt for how many years? 400 years, and that's a long time. Generation after generation coming up in Egypt, they didn't have the written word like we have. Uh, they were eventually enslaved there and uh, uh, couldn't have all of the worship areas that they needed and all this kind of thing. So it's like, and, and Egyptians had many gods. You got to think about the confusion that that would bring among the people of God, that perhaps many of the, uh, uh, the Jews themselves had polytheistic leanings by this time, that there are more than one gods, uh, more than one God. And um, even though they had, of course, heard of the accounts of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and knew kind of who they were as a people, perhaps the, the, the waters were muddied. So God reveals to them, I am, as opposed to the gods who are not. There's a distinction here. You'll see, we'll look at it in our time in Isaiah doing this about the false gods and the idols and the futility of them as compared to Yahweh, right, who is. But I think secondly, in what most theologians would agree with, the name itself implies self-existence or the technical theological term would be aseity. Aseity, so A-S-E-I-T-Y, which is a Latin word that means from self is the idea. So aseity, from self, or we could just say it very simply, God has and is self-existence. This, of course, means he doesn't derive his existence from anyone else, right? Who or what is the cause of Yahweh? He is. Uh, he is the cause of himself, not in the sense that he has a beginning. We learn that later on. He has no beginning uh, and he has no end. He always has been and always will be. But yet, uh, he is the, the cause of himself, so to speak. He has in himself. I want you to try to really contemplate this for a, for, for a second. He has complete self-existence. Aseity. He can't, you cannot trace his existence to someone else or something else, right? And that means, secondly, that the name itself expresses his independence of all things. 
Have you ever heard somebody well-intentioned now, let's give them the benefit of doubt, a pastor or something making an appeal for missions and say something like this, God needs you. God needs you to go to the nations and preach the gospel. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need anyone. And if you're thinking back even into the creation of the world, don't think it was that God was lonely or there was something he felt that he was missing that, you know, he needed, uh, like we need a puppy. God doesn't need anyone or anything. He is utterly of himself and what we'll learn in more of his attributes, that in himself he is eternally blessed and happy. There is no part of him that is unhappy or needs fulfillment. There's no void within him that he's got to do something to fill this void, to feel more complete or whole as he is. He is completely independent of all things that includes us. That separates God out from everyone else and everything else that is. Nothing else and no one else is self-existent. Okay? And that leads me to this third one. These, these naturally kind of line up together, right? He, is, he has self-existence, he, which means he has no cause but himself. Uh, he is independent of all things. And thirdly, he is the source of all there is. So he is the ultimate being that is, and everything else that has its being derives its being from him. R.C. Sproul called it the power, he has the power of being. In other words, the power of being within himself and the power of being to grant being to something else. This is why the Bible begins with Genesis 1.1 and we see that the one with, that is God before anything else was, that is earth and animals and people and spiritual beings. He was when there not, was nothing else there and what did he do to bring it into being? He spoke. His very word brings, has the power of being to bring into being the things that do not exist. That's what Paul says. Abraham believed in God when God said, you will have a child even though they were really old and it was impossible humanly speaking, but he believed in the God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. So everything that is a thing, everyone that is someone, everything that has being that we see and experience, including us, derive their, they can trace the source of their being to the divine being. Okay? That's why the Bible begins with Genesis 1.1 showing us the one with the power of being and then letting us understand where we get our being from. Now, let's make this practical for a second. 
knowing that God is, that we weren't, but God causes us to be and gives us being, in what way does that kind of set the tone for our relationship with him? In what ways? Do you understand what I'm asking? Like in what ways does knowing that apart from him, you can't exist? And that if he willed it, he could will you out of existence forever. Dependence, right? That's the key word. It, it means that we, as his creation, are dependent on him. It is, we could call it the doctrine of dependence. That everything and everyone that is, is utterly and completely and totally and thoroughly dependent on God. He is dependent on no one and nothing. We, on the other hand, and everything else and everyone else are dependent upon him. We are ultimately dependent on him for everything. As a matter of fact, when, when Paul talks about in Colossians 1, the Son of God being the one through whom and for whom all things were created and in whom all things are, all things exist. As, as a matter of fact, he's holding them together, the author of Hebrews said, by the word of his power. It's just... We exist because he says so. We exist because he allows us to exist. He is the one upon whom we are dependent each and every day. For what? Okay, to praise him. What else? Even more generally. All of our needs. Sustenance, spiritual good, salvation, life, health, everything there that we have or need, we're dependent upon Him. It is, so that is why, too, when you wonder why, in the garden, when Adam and Eve were being tempted to sin against God, the, the, probably the greatest temptation was for them to live independently of God. The devil was wanting them to live independently of the one who holds their being in his hand. He's calling them to be independent of the one who provides them with everything they need to live. And we think to ourselves, this is how, friends, listen, the vast majority of the human race live independently of the God who every minute is holding them together, giving them existence. Which is why it's, it should be baffling to us when Christians struggle with the doctrine of the wrath of God. It's almost like they're just, uh, I don't want to talk about the wrath of God, I want to apologize for it. How can God be wrathful? Are you kidding me? The crown of his creation gets up every morning giving no thought to him, shoveling the food that he provides down their ungrateful gullets every day, breathing in the oxygen he gives them, willingly living just absolute opposite of what even their conscience that he gave them to guide them does. And we wonder why God has wrath. 
See, if you put the fall into perspective, it really helps you understand doctrines like the wrath of God and hell itself. Puts it in perspective, right? What an offense to this God. And yet he continually, Jesus said, wow, he's such a God that he shows and demonstrates love even for his enemies in this way that he provides for them even though they don't acknowledge him, even though that they worship other gods that aren't him, even though they willingly reject him. Can you see how that works out? That's why we as Christian people, we must learn this doctrine of dependency and God's self-existence and the power of being he has and understanding we have being because what we need to do then is shape our lives every day in a way that we are demonstrating our daily dependence and need of him, right? We need him every day, all day. We're dependent on God. You know, what's interesting to me, Joel Osteen wrote a book and it's called The Power of I Am. And he's not talking about Yahweh. The power of I am, listen to this, two words that will change your life today. Well, whatever could he mean? Well, transform your self-image. This is, by the way, from Google Books, the uh, a description of this book, right? So I'm just quoting to you. Transform your self-image and embrace the power of positive thinking with two simple words. Declare I am and celebrate the life God has created for you. Whatever follows the words I am will, will always come looking for you. So when you go through the day saying, I am blessed, blessings pursue you. I am talented, then talent follows you. I am healthy, health heads your way. I am strong, strength tracks you down. Joel Osteen reveals how the power of I am can help you discover your unique abilities and advantages to lead a more productive and happier life. His insights and encouragement are illustrated with many amazing stories of people who turned their lives around by focusing. They turned their lives around by focusing on the positive power of this principle. You can choose to rise to a new level and invite God's goodness by focusing on these two words, I am. Guys, the man's from the devil. I don't care if he holds up his Bible every week out there in Texas and says, this is the word of God. We will live by that. And then he sets it down and doesn't talk about it. Any kind of gospel or any form of Christianity that focuses on the I am being you and what you have in you and what you can do to speak positive things into your life, friends, it's a false gospel. What we see in scripture is that the I am we need to focus on is the great I am through whom, yeah, I'm blessed, but I'm dependent on his grace for that blessing. Any talent I have comes from him. My entire day as I get up, any health I have, any strength I have comes from the great I am, the source of all being, the power of all being. Everything I am, I receive from him, you see. That's what we do. We train Christians not to think great about themselves and improve your self-image. 
We train Christians to improve their understanding of God and that creator-creature distinction and how utterly dependent you are on him each day. If you start your day by saying, I am this and I am that and I am this, okay, whatever. But what you need to do is start your day saying, he is. He is. Yahweh. He is. He is my everything. He is my all in all. You start your days, friends. Don't grab your cell phone when you start your day. Pray to God. You wake up in the morning, we should be just saying to God, God, I am utterly dependent on you for all things today. Give me the resources I need to make it through this day. I'm depending on you. You know, that's really what godliness is. The idea of godliness isn't necessarily not sinning or sinning or whatever. It's a, it implies some of those things. But the understanding behind the word godliness is more a life that acknowledges utter dependence on God all day. You live as though you are in the presence of God and you are dependent upon God all day. That is godliness. If you go through your day, Guys, and this happens sometimes to us, so I'm not chastising anybody because I, I would have to claim guilty to this myself uh, from time to time. But if we, if we can get to uh, our lunch and all of a sudden we realize we have not acknowledged God today at all, are we really understanding that He is and that our being comes from Him and that we are utterly dependent on him through all stages of the day and everything that we have and everything we are. Okay, so that is that is the power of being. Now, one thing I'll show you in the scriptures and then I'll close. We can, I'll open it up a question. But look at Acts chapter 17. Paul is in Athens and he's preaching to people who don't know the one true God, but they worship many gods. Of course, this is the account of um, him wanting to talk to them about the unknown God. Acts chapter 17, look at verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our what? Our being. We are dependent on him for verse 25, life and breath. And then he summarizes, what, what word does he use at the end of 25? Everything comes from God. And then we live, he actually is quoting a, a, a probably a, 
a, a Cretan poet here when he says, in him we live and move and have our being. He is the source of all being. This is the way we live our lives. In him we live and move and have our being. So this week we're just focusing essentially on this divine name and saying that he is, uh, well, he is, and uh, that he is the source of all being, he is self-being, and then we are to conclude that we are utterly dependent on him for all things. I didn't get to where I was going to go, but we'll look at it in our time, but if you go into the New Testament, it's interesting to just see how this is connected to the Son of God, Jesus, in many ways. So in John 1, 1, in the beginning, was, there's our verb of being, I love it, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were created through him. So uh, it points us right to the son, because anything, as we'll talk about in, in a future time, anything that we relate to God generally, any attribute like a saity has to be applied to the son and the spirit, because all three are co-equal with God. And I think that's why I have that London Baptist Confession, just that little section. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit, of one substance or being, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence. So anything that you attribute to the Father, you attribute to the Son, attribute to the Spirit when it comes to the attributes of God like a saity. All right. 545, any questions? Mark. The last the uh, probably, let me see. The divine name implies that God has the, oh, the power of being. Power of being? The power of being, yes. And the divine name implies self-existence or a saity. Anything else? All right, good. Next week, we're going to jump into another passage where we'll do kind of similar thing that we've just done with this. We're going to go in there, see what God says about himself or what God does, these passages, and then we'll draw our theological conclusions about those. Okay, so let's pray and we'll conclude. Father, we, <clears throat> we thank you for revealing yourself to us and how much more we know uh, through the gospel about you, how wonderful that is. Uh, we praise you for it. We want to praise the name, your name, uh, throughout this week. So I pray that you would help us to do it. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.